A warning, this episode contains mention of childhood trauma, gun violence, and eating disorders. Spare is the memoir of Prince Harry, the second son of King Charles of England. It's an unflinching look at the machinations of the royal family and their very toxic relationship with the press and the public, and I'd say with each other. And it's quite a read. Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and my friends, we are so lucky to have a returning guest this week. Shashati Basu is a multilingual journalist, mental health book show podcast host, and award-winning activist, and one of my favorite past guests of the show. I was really eager to get her take on this book that has been in the news basically nonstop for the last week, and to talk to her about the issues beyond the headlines. Because besides settling the score with his family, there are a lot of really big themes in this book such as structural racism, blood sport, generational trauma, and unresolved PTSD. And most important to all of us as readers, we talked about if this book is actually any good. Hi, Shashati. Welcome back to the Best Book Ever podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, I couldn't resist talking to you, our favorite British guest. (laughs) (laughs) And we're going to go a little off script for today's episode. I'm not sure either one of us would call Spare the best book ever, Mm-mm. even though I'm sure there are plenty of people who would call it that. But it's definitely the book of the week. Definitely. And a book that I think is going to be seen as a watershed moment in the history of the royals. And since you are in London... I know you can't speak for everyone in England, but what's the general reception been like? Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> so the thing is, obviously, the the book is sort of the end of multiple different things coming out about specifically Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, of course. You know, we've had, obviously, the interviews. It all started with the Oprah interview, actually. But then since then, we've had, you know, the Spotify podcast and we had also the Netflix show. And since then, over the weekend, we also had the multiple interviews with different news channels with Prince Harry on his book, Spare, which came out on Tuesday of this week. So to be fair, there's been a big build up for this moment and the general reception has been pretty evenly split for for and against, unfortunately, and nothing Mm. down the middle. (laughs) No nuance. What a shock. (laughs) Nope, not at all. Not in this country, no. I want to start with the review that you wrote for the National World. First of all, you got the interview out really fast. Did you have (laughs) an advanced copy of the book? No, no, I just read very quickly. So I just got through it really, really quickly in the morning and just wrote it out. Yeah. (laughs) So in in the very first line of of your review... You call this book, quote, a very public domestic squabble and a serious look at identity and mental health. And you had me from that line because I thought you absolutely nailed the two central points of this book in one pithy statement. Because I I really think this book is 50 percent score settling and 50 percent very important therapy work. Yeah. Yeah. It just 
you know, it, it first of all read like someone who, you know, I did mention this in the article as well, is that it's very Shakespearean in nature, this kind of dynamic between the family members. So it's another very important British institution, Shakespeare. So it, it was really interesting how his whole life also played out in the same, very same way. And also just the fact that it was a domestic squabble. It, you know, if this was any other person, this is a, essentially a domestic situation of, you know, very, very, it's very common, actually, you know, brothers who aren't on the same boat, the older brother having certain responsibilities, the younger brother having less responsibilities and not seen in the same way, seen as almost invisible. It's very similar dynamic to many sibling relationships. You have a father who's got a lot of responsibility on him, but then has a sort of a weird attitude towards de- dealing with his sons. And then also, you you know, these are kids of a divorced couple. So, you know, this is all the dynamics of a turbulent domestic relationship. And then add that on top of that, you know, the mental health aspect, because there's very much this theme of him trying to find catharsis throughout the book. And, you know, his mother being this kind of specter throughout this book, you know, just her almost as a form of, I would consider it PTSD. And he does refer to it as PTSD, where she's always this person who's just such an important part of his life, but he didn't really have that much of her in his life. So very much these themes came up time and time and again, all the way through right across all the different kind of scenarios he ended up in. Yeah. The thing about his mom, I'm going to say the word sad probably a hundred times during our conversation here. And I said it on every single page as I was reading, but I felt one of the things I felt most profoundly sad about was every time he describes his mom, it's in terms of she's pure light, she's pure Pure happiness, she's nothing but beautiful, she was nothing but good, and that she'll always be frozen for him at who she was when she died, when he was a young kid. And he didn't get to have that experience of getting to know your parent as a very, just as flawed and Human. messed up individual as you are, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a, it's such a shame. On the one hand, it's neat that he never, he will always think of his mom as a beautiful young woman, but what a loss to not get to know her and to not go through that phase that most of the rest of us get to go through. That's such an incredible loss that you didn't get to know all sides of her nuanced personality because nobody is all light that that doesn't happen no and it definitely I think a lot of children who faced that kind of loss and bereavement at such a young age of a parent end up putting that parent on a pedestal especially Uh if they've had a really positive light sort of positive relationship with them and that's kind of what he's done with his mother in this situation. He's only ever seen her in a positive light. And I think it's even similar even for William as well, where, you know, they they were very young when they, they lost their mother. So they have just, as you say, it's just frozen in time. But more than anything, it's that accident. It's that final moment of her life that's also frozen in time as you've Mm. seen that they keep going back to over and over again of what happened that night 
which is really, really harrowing because it's a horrific way to die anyways. But just to also have so much evidence of it in in the public sphere, just constantly being faced with that that moment where, yes, your mother died in the, you know, in front of all these paparazzi, which was really quite awful when he described it. I don't know if this is an appropriate question to ask a British person. So if I'm off base, (laughs) go ahead and shut me up. But can I ask you what your personal take on the monarchy is? So personally, like I am not a royalist by any means. You know, I do not believe in colonialism. I am very anti-royalist, but that's that's partially why I feel like I can give a sort of good take on this particular book because I don't, I didn't come into it reading it as, oh, this is a a person with huge privilege who's had so much in his life that he shouldn't have any, you know, he shouldn't have the right to complain essentially because I didn't read it like that. I read it as someone who's giving their side of a story. And it was a very human story that I felt like a lot of people could probably relate to. Even though I don't believe in the kind of institution of the monarchy, I feel that, you know, he has a right to also have that platform to speak for himself. Did this book change your opinion about the monarchy as an institution or about any of the royals individually? Not really. I think, yeah, I think the thing is, is that we're aware that, you know, it's a very antiquated system. There's a lot of problems within the system. And what he did was highlight a lot of those aspects, which is it's a very inhumane system. It doesn't see people as individuals within that system. It sees it as your your building blocks. You're just basically a cog within this system. And each person has a role within the system to keep it functioning. Now, you know, he basically, you know, the fact that it's called spare really refers to the fact that that's his role within that. So, you know, he talks about being the shadow, the support and the plan B for if anything happens to the air. And that is his role, which is obviously very dehumanizing Mm. from the start. So I think that's kind of what it really summed up was the kind of dehumanization. The monarchy is a very sort of antiquated, dehumanized system that personally, I'm not sure really works for this modern day any anymore. But hence his book just kind of almost sort of reiterated a lot of what I had thought before. I want to ask you about the overall theme of hunting. Now, you know, as you know, I'm American. We're known worldwide for our love of guns and gun culture. <laughs> but I'm from California. So to be honest, all of that is absolutely foreign to me. <laughs> and I, in the book, I really fixated on the many times he talked about hunting and the different ways he talked about hunting. It's Mm. very much a part of the royal life. And he sees it as beneficial. You know, we are helping the environment. We're feeding the townspeople, this sort of noble sport. And I was reading it going, my God, the bloodlust in these people Mm -hmm. is horrifying. And then he goes into his time in Afghanistan, and a lot has been made about he names how many Taliban he killed. Once again, an absolutely horrifying number. Yeah. And he he almost made the connection, but I thought he fell short. And I'm interested to hear what you thought, because he does talk about the press's bloodlust. 
I I made the leap for me that I'm part of this bloodlust system because as I was reading, I was commenting on Instagram the entire time. <laughs> I yeah. at a very tense moment, I got on Instagram and I called the press a bunch of flesh eating maggots. What is that if not dehumanizing? They're obviously just as human as I am and as Harry is, but the only way to justify hatred is to dehumanize, is to call names, is to convince yourself that they're not people trying to earn a living. They've been told they have a right to take those pictures. They have a right to write those articles that the royal family owes them this. Mm. And the lep- the leap that I made is that I'm really part of the system that dehumanizes them because I- I've read everything over the years. <laughs> I- they're entertaining yeah. to me. I think this whole system's nonsense and racist, but, well, uh, you know, I'm just watching yeah. them. And I, I was disappointed that he didn't see it necessarily in himself or in the system. And I was sad that he didn't seem to take that extra step. What, did you have any thoughts about those, the connection of sort of bloodlust throughout those three things, the hunting and his military service and the press? Yeah. I'm like, the thing is, is that one, one aspect of it is that a, a, for me, I felt like he'd internalized a lot of that bloodlust. So, you know, mm. it, it's like when you have internalized racism, you put it towards you start otherizing even people like yourself. And I feel, felt like he'd otherized that kind of aspect of his life as well. Now, the thing is, is that also the other aspect is that he talked about being in the military. Military is a very important tradition within sort of British, you know, imperialism. And, you know, every single royal is a server, has served in some shape or form, if not just in a, a sort of a, a honorary way. And so otherizing is a very common perception in just in even within the royal family. So being, you know, so his he actually mentions this. This is like he'd been trained to otherize people, which is quite interesting because that's what all militaries do in order for them to be able to dehumanize other people to kill them. Sure. So they can't do the job otherwise. They can't do the job otherwise. So, you know, I was just like, okay, I see I see that he's been kind of broken down quite to quite to a severe extreme. He's also internalized a lot of the hunting nature as well. So I was just like, okay, this guy has a very, very well, for me, I was like, he seems very fragile, like mm. mentally very unstable. Because I was just like, he's, he seems to have like fragmented his personality and identity through that lens where he was just like, it's, you know, I, I am able to otherize these people just like I've grown up in a situation where I have called people all sorts of names. Like I think he uses the P word to describe an South Asian colleague of his. Oh, that's right. right. Yeah. And he said, I didn't know that this was a bad word because I hadn't, really it hadn't really been seen I hadn't seen anyone use it in that kind of term before and that was the third aspect of it which was the level of a bubble he had lived in which was really interesting because it was just like he only sees one aspect of the which is the fishbowl essentially Mm. so he sees war 
which is a very common aspect of the royal family. He sees the media, which is also a really important institution alongside the the monarchy. And then he sees this kind of fishbowl imperialism. So it's just like he very much kind of exudes a lot of what was taught to him. So he is probably the first generation trying to break that mold. But it doesn't mean that he isn't very much part of that system and that he hasn't been brought up in it. You know, because so of course he he is also talking about the things that he's done within that kind of vacuum. So it's it's quite interesting. So I, I believe the next few generations will probably start to see a different side of it. But I think he's still half in and half out of the system. Yeah. Very complex. Yeah, it's very it's extremely complex actually when you think about it, when you read it. It's not I don't even think he has really fully understood himself either. And do you find that believable, though, when he talks the story that we have been fed about Megan didn't know about the royal family or it and it's not her book, so it's not really fair to mm. bring her up in the but the constant I was surprised by the racism I just kind of beggars belief for me. That's something that I work on very hard in my life because we are all constantly learning and I want to extend the grace to him. It is entirely possible he did not realize the institution that he is a very significant player in is mm. built on the backs of black and brown people around the world. And absolutely. And 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 so every time I kept thinking and he'd go, I can't believe they called her this. And I would think, are you kidding me? How did mm-hmm. you not know? And and so I was really torn as I was reading between rolling my eyes at him and also thinking, okay, but now you know. What what are we doing now? And and that was those were my disappointed moments as I I kind of wish he'd given himself another year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because all he, he's only at the realization stage. Yeah. I think he's emotionally very immature. And the thing is, is I think that just comes from not having any guidance or support growing up. You know, that level of kind of emotional training essentially is supposed to be done by parents and things like that, you know. And he was very much left alone, I think, to his mm-hmm. own devices. You know, which is why he found kind of unhealthy coping mechanisms, such as like going into drugs. And he talks extensively about it to the point that he doesn't even realize that he has a real problem because there was quite extensive use, you know, extensive kind of mention of his drug use. But he always talked about it like, oh, I'm not an addict. And I was like, well, that doesn't mm. sound like you, that is, you know, that very much sounds like a coping mechanism you're using, which is a sort of addiction. So it was quite interesting. I think he hasn't made a lot of sort of leaps just yet, but I do believe, you know, he is emotionally a little bit immature. And I think that, you know, he's still learning. And I think he's learning at a much older sort of age. So most people were like, oh, yeah, but he's like 35, 36 years old. You know, he should know this. But just think about it. He's only really started growing up in the last like five years. So he's quite emotionally stunted. And that's definitely how I felt when reading the book that 
his lack of sort of being able to make connections between events and things like that, and also his lack of sort of realization about the world around him are two aspects of his emotional immaturity. And all the fact, also the fact that he just didn't live outside beyond that bubble until only recently. Yeah. And, you know, as you're saying that, to be fair to him, he does say, I believe it's in the last chapter about he's sort of mocked around the world and infantilized. And then he says, but I have never owned anything. I've never had a key. I was never I never carried cash. So in a sense, it's absolutely fair that he still has this very immature outlook on life and and no understanding of how the world actually works because he for heaven's sakes i mean if you grow up in a palace with hundreds of ser- yeah. servants of course you don't know no. how to scrub a toilet how would he know that how would he know and also there's an element of kind of like stockholm syndrome where you know oh. it's just like he he he's so he's been brought up and attached to that world and he believes like that was the only way he could survive. And uh, and then being told that actually all of that was just a facade and that you were, you know, basically used throughout that time. Mm. I think it's a, it, there is an element of Stockholm syndrome in that. And he's very much out of that now. But, you know, the, the idea that he still wants to try and build a relationship with his family past this is kind of being in denial. I very much doubt that's going to be a possibility now. Yeah, he has said in interviews and in the book that he would love to serve the monarchy again. And it does, it, it was sort it's sort of a stunning admission. Yeah, and it's understandable because that is sort of part of the Stockholm syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you don't know anything else, you know, it's very easy to be like, oh, I don't know how to live without these people, these, the system. Yeah. It's like a, a lot of complex mental health related things happening within this book. Was there anything in the book that surprised you? And I'm not just talking about the salacious headlines that are appearing everywhere, but either that or just in terms of the themes of the book or the personal interrogation, did anything surprise you? Yeah, I, I was really quite shocked i'm i'm basing this obviously on his admission you know we don't know the other side of the story but you know his claim about both his father and camilla's role in sort of spin doctors and how they basically you know sort of put them under the bus essentially to revive their own reputations which is a really quite astounding thing to to claim given you know harry was just so young he was mm. just a teenager when this claim was made he in the book he alleged that his father and camilla had sort of put out to the news that he was an addict just so that his father wouldn't be seen as like the the villain in this princess diana story and that way he would be seen as a single father taking care of an addicted son and i was like that's a that's a terrible thing mm. to have happened if that is a reality so that was really shocking and the the level of sort of their relationship with the media i.e. The, the the current king charles and camilla 
that they were more concerned about their image than mm-hmm. how they behave with William, because there is an instance where Prince Harry claims that they did that to William as well, which was really quite surprising because it's it just goes to show the sort of toxic nature of this family. Yeah, he says that his uncle Charles, Diana's brother, called the marching behind the her coffin barbaric. barbaric. I'll tell you a personal story. My oldest was born the day she died. And so I spent those two days, well, that week, you know, just having postpartum depression and watching TV and sobbing. Of course. I remember thinking like, this this isn't what you do to children. And I was a brand no. new, you know, I was a mom of whatever, six days. And I didn't know what how to take care of children. Mom did those too. Yeah. yeah. My mom did too. She was like, that is just, she was a huge fan of Princess Diana. And, you know, it's a, it's weird because in, in the UK, like there's a real kind of affiliate, like affinity with Princess Diana, even now. Yeah. She was absolutely furious. Like when she saw that happen, she was just like, who does that to children like that? Who does that? Right. And that's the thing that seems to be missing throughout this book is that urge that we that most of us have, which is you protect children. Yes. And I have I've never felt that with these boys. And I, and I now realize, I guess it's, it's the case for all of them. None of them are ultimately protected except the no. main person. That's right. And that's right. When it comes to children, which. Let's be honest. Diana was a child when she married into she this. She was. She was. Yeah. And same problems. You know, she had some horrific issues, you know, just dealing with, you know, they, it's, it's been publicly noted about her eating disorders mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, you know, how she managed to just keep herself above the parapet, you know, just to keep those children going. You know, she had she had a really hard life. So this isn't, I think that's the problem is it's, we live in a bit of a strange country. I'm not going to lie. There's a there's a lot of admiration for the royal family because of its association with its past, which is you know essentially it was at one point it owned 25 percent of the world, and it still continues to have that level of sort of power, even though not really in reality. But people really see this. People really kind of revere this royal family that that is what it sort of symbolizes even though in reality it's something completely different now you know it is just a ceremonial role you know they have no power in parliament so it is just a such a bizarre notion that people are so keen to protect this family still so anyone who basically shakes that foundation of the, the individual monarch is mm. seen as a villain, is seen as a threat to that imperial system, mm-hmm. is seen as a threat to power. This is probably why you'll notice that such an insane reaction in the media, because they see it as a destabilization of essentially our imperial power. Do you think this book will change anything? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like a cyclical thing. You know how Diana's interview had the same effect? Mm-hmm. Uh, to the monarchy where it it kind of sort of shook them for a little while but at some point it just goes back on track again 
I think what it does is just generation by generation, it just moves it forward slightly. But I don't think it has enough to really just uproot everything personally. It all depends at the end of the day is whether King Charles is capable of doing his role as well as the Queen did. And that's a totally different question. And that's got nothing to do with the book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I think that's that's the main thing. It will shake them a little while. They'll have answers. They'll need to make statements. But in the end, I think they'll go back on track again. Outside of the contents of this book, which is endlessly fun to talk about, I want to ask you about the book itself. Did you? How did you feel about it? Did you feel it was a well-written book? Did you feel it was a, a well-told story? I think, okay, I think it's written pretty well. I'm like, you know, J.R. Moringa, who's a very notable ghostwriter, you know, he wrote for the Nike founder, Phil Knight, for Shoe Dog, which was an absolute success. He's a very good writer. It sounds like Harry when you read it. It really does sound like him. But I do believe it could have been edited, honestly. I think it was very long for what it was especially part two, where they go into depth about Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I think there are parts where it's quite repetitive. So I do think a little bit of editing would have been, would have helped in this situation. But, you know, I think Harry got his point across, that's for sure. Which is interesting, right? Because he does talk a lot in the book about how he never, he never liked school. I think on his first date with Megan, he says he told her, I don't do books. He's not a, so he makes it clear, not a reader, not into academics. And yet you said at the beginning of our conversation, it has a Shakespearean quality to it. There's a whole lot of Shakespeare references in it. Hmm. And then there are moments of, he's talking about where he sleeps in Balmoral. He gets the smaller of the two nursery rooms because obviously his brother gets the gigantic one. Mm -hmm. And he talks about getting in his bed that sags. And I'm going to read you this quote. The linens pulled as tight as a snare drum, so expertly smoothed that you could easily spot a century's worth of patched holes and tears. Wow. I read that (laughs) sentence and thought, my God, someone is working on metaphors. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely understand what you're saying, especially with those kind of metaphors and things like that whether how much sort of influence he had over that and you know I think he probably gave him a picture of what it could have been like Mm -hmm. and then basically he was able to describe it but honestly I don't believe some of that language was Harry him I do believe you know there was a lot of sort of writing from Moringa that really kind of brought it to life essentially just so that we could kind of picture what Harry was living in and the the sort of the environments he lived in. Otherwise, I don't think he was the one describing all these different bits. <laughs> yes. The blood, the lyrical descriptions of hunting pheasants. I I just don't believe that they're all out there shooting things and quoting Shakespeare. I no. just don't. I love thinking about it, but I don't I don't believe that's what they're doing. But it made for a nice read. <laughs> now, is this a book that you would recommend to others just as a good read? Not necessarily, if I'm not talking about people who want to know more about Harry specifically, but just as a as a good read. Is this something you would pass on to friends and say, this is a fun afternoon? 
(laughs) Yeah, no, that's probably not funny enough. Mm. I think, I think the thing is, is is that people have read this book out of interest about him. But the truth is, is that if this was any other person, no one would care. Mm. That's the thing is that, you know, people are only interested in the fact that this is who it's who he is. And they want a, a little bit more insight into him. It's a bit like an extension of some of the sort of gaudy articles you read about him. It's like a 400-page version of it. But this time he gets to write it in his own words, you know, mm. or almost writes it in his own words. So it just is, it's only kind of, I think it will only be a good read if you're very interested in the subject. Which is why I gave it a three out of five originally. Gosh, what would I rate this? I think I would give it a five just because I had such a great time reading it, even though it was mm. profoundly sad on every page. But, yes. But I'm never going to read it again. No, it's no not. Way. Yeah. We'll see if it, we approve wrong and it gets a Pulitzer or something. But um, that would be really know. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but at this point, I was just like, if you if you're interested in the subject, then yes, yeah, it's, it's worth the read. But I, but I'm really keen on saying, do not make a judgment without reading it. And why Why do you say that? Oh, God. As soon as I got onto Goodreads, there were just one stars all over the place without reading it, which was really unfair, I think, just for people who just want to read it. So I think it's it should be given a fair, fair kind of trial, essentially. Okay. So other than royal gossip, t- will you tell us what you're reading right now? Oh, gosh, I've been catching up with all the 2023 books of the year at the moment already. So read two excellent books this week. One was called Age of Vice by Dipti Kapoor and another one called Bandit Queens by Parani Shroff. And they are already seen in the big lists of the year of what books to read because absolutely fascinating reads. You know, Age of Vice is very much like The Godfather with a bit of the white tiger in it and bandit oh. yeah it's fabulous and bandit queens was just fabulous it's a very satirical look at a sort of gender discrimination in india so it's actually really interesting and there is a widows kind of club who are also into hitting people i.e assassins so it's it is it is quite an intriguing book and worth reading. So two books from 2023 from January this month that's already come out so worth reading. Oh okay that was I've never heard of either of these. So they're both already released. We can find them already? Yes, so they were oh, both great. released on January the 3rd. Yes, so definitely check them out. Oh great. Okay, and before you go, will you share with our listeners where they can find you and all the work you do? Oh thank you Julie. I'm at at how to be 24/7 on Instagram, Facebook and all the main, all the main social media channels channels and also on www.howtobe247.com we've just finished our last episode of season 2 and we are getting ready for season 3 and it's absolutely mammoth with all the amazing guests we're about to have on including lots of big authors from this year who will be joining us so please check it out I'm always very grateful for everything you do. And I'm so, so grateful that you jumped on this conversation with me to talk about something that, I don't know, feels both big and small at the same time. And I Mm. always love talking to you. And I hope you will come back anytime there's an interesting book to talk about. 
absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on again, Julia. Really appreciate it. I love being here. It's such a great space. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I will see you in London for a cup of tea. Yay. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Bookworms, I'm really eager to hear if you've read this book or if you plan to and what your thoughts are. Let me know over on Instagram at bestbookeverpodcast. Links to everything Shashati and I discussed are available on the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. Thanks for joining me today. And as always, I will see you at the library.